Thank you. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Janet B. For those of you who I don't know, and um, tonight I am going to talk about pride. Last week, Melissa talked about step four, which, you know, where we look at our character defects. And just because this happens to be one that's my Achilles heel, um, I did some research on it and put together a talk. So hopefully it's helpful to y'all. Um, so I have found that there is actually 12 different manifestations of pride. And, you know, why do we look at this? So on the big book, page 62, it says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. And remember, in a tree, you can't see the roots. They're underground. You see the fruit. And the fruit's resentment, fear, and harms to others. But self-centeredness, pride, wanting things my way, that's the root. People who aren't selfish and self-centered to the core of their being don't get this illness. And pride, the big book tells us, is one of the ingredients that goes into making up the self-centered life. Um, in, in the AA 12 and 12 on page 70, it tells us that the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of all of the 12 steps. Why? And they ask, why is it so important for us to have humility? Because without humility, we can't stay sober or abstinent. Okay, so then give me just enough humility so I can stay abstinent or sober. And they say, uh-uh. They say, that's not enough that unless we develop a lot more of this precious quality than is required just to be sober or abstinent, we can't be happy, we can't be useful, and we can't summon the faith we need in order to be able to deal with adversity. Okay, I understand that like if I'm prideful, maybe that would stop me from being abstinent or it would stop me from being happy, right? Because if I go around thinking I'm better than everyone, no one's gonna wanna be my friend. But they say it blocks faith, that pride actually blocks my faith, that it stops me from connecting with God. So I'm thinking about it and it's like, well, of course, because if I think I'm so great, I won't think that I have any need for God. I won't be seeking God with all my heart, which is what the book says is required. So let's dive in. As I said, I came up with 12 different manifestations of pride, so I'm going to talk about that and maybe some ideas on what we, what I can do to overcome this, or rather like let God be in a position so that God can remove it from me. So the definition of pride that Sam Shoemaker gave, and he was one of Bill Wilson's spiritual advisors, he said, a high esteem of oneself for some real or imaginary merit or superiority a high esteem of oneself for some real or imaginary merit or superiority. So here's the way it shows off. Number one, showing off and caring what other people think. That's when we want other people to see what we have. Look how fancy my clothes are. Look at my cool new car. Um, it's like we're silently bragging. Um, and it can manifest itself in our children. Look at the college my kids are going to. Look at my son, the doctor. These things, it's all showing off, caring what other people think about us. And there's a really good quote from Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite spiritual writers. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something 
but only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being more rich, more clever, more better looking than others. If everyone else was equally rich, clever, and good looking, there would be nothing to be proud of. So again, showing off. Number two, this is seems like it's the opposite, not caring at all what other people think of us. If we don't care for the right reason because we only care what God thinks about us, that's fine. But most of us are not at that high spiritual level where we can say, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. All I care about is God. I mean, I'm certainly not at that level. Um, but to not care at all what others think, C.S. Lewis, a great writer of the 20th century, says, the diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you don't care what they think of you. If you say, why should I care for the applause of that rabble as if their opinion were worth anything, then that's a problem. Number three, pride of affiliation. I mean, that's saying that I'm special or thinking that I'm special because I'm affiliated with something. So for instance, I work for a company now that does websites for some like major sports teams, major financial institutions. And I've gone and said, yeah, my company does the website for blah, 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 or did the ticketing system for this um, major, you know, major um, theme park. Okay. And people say, wow, that's really cool. They don't let me near the websites or the customers. I'm in the back office doing the books and all that kind of stuff, but it's pride of affiliation. Or people are saying things like, well, you know, my cousin plays for this baseball team or my great, great grandmother was on the Mayflower or our kids. I was not above um, the pride of affiliation that my son was the varsity goalie for the school soccer team. Me, I can't throw a soccer ball to save my life. Pride of affiliation, or kick a soccer ball. Pride of affiliation. Um, and again, Sam Shoemaker says, when we have this kind of pride, we expect to be deferred to, not for any moral or intellectual distinction in ourselves, but because we're related to somebody notable. Number four, pride in our accomplishments. Um, it's okay to feel good about ourselves when we've accomplished something, but pride is when we don't realize that it's a gift. That if I have a high IQ or good coordination um, or you know some kind of talent, it's only because it's a gift that God gave me. Success shouldn't be measured by how well I'm doing compared to other people. It should be measured by how well I'm doing compared to what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, so, you know, we have to be careful, pride in our accomplishments, we should have gratitude. Number five, spiritual pride. And Sam Shoemaker says this is the most deadly form of pride. It's like, well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. It's comparing ourselves to other people. No, like in World War II, if you went to France, you would see that everyone in France was emaciated. It was normal, but it wasn't healthy. So if everybody around is gossiping 
and I'm only gossiping a little, I may say, well, I'm great. No, no, I'm only, I'm supposed to hold myself to the standard of what I should be doing, which is not gossiping at all. And to not think that I'm on any kind of better spiritual plane than anybody else. Even if I say, well, I've been abstinent for a number of years, or I've worked the steps, you know, got through the steps a long time ago. All it means is maybe I got on the bus stop, couple stops before the next guy. Big deal. If you if you see a bus driving down the city streets of New York, does anyone ever say, oh, the person who got on at, you know, 64th Street, they're better than the person who got on at 78th Street? No. Ultimately, hopefully, we all get to the same destination, and that's into the arms of God. Doesn't matter who gets there first. Number six, pride of a spiritual influencer. Okay, we all know those like Instagram influencers. We are not talking about that kind. Talk about spiritual influ influencers. So if a person only hears how much he helps others, it's very easy to relapse into a pride strong enough to kill everything genuinely spiritual in our lives. Um, so we have to be careful of that. And sponsoring is a great protection against that because there will always be failures. No matter how good a sponsor is, the sponsor will never succeed with 100% of the sponsees, or at least I don't know anyone who succeeded with 100%. I think my sponsor is a really good sponsor. Not everyone she's tried to help has recovered. Um, and I think though, it's especially helpful if we're sponsoring, if someone drops out, instead of just saying, well, she wasn't willing. Well, he wasn't willing. If we do an honest 10 step and see, did we have a part? Did we push too much? Did we enable for too long? Did we not give them enough time and say, well, I got it in you know two months, therefore she needs to get it in two months. Um, so it's really good to beat this kind of pride, to go back if a sponsee drops, to really go over, did I do anything wrong? And I find that sometimes I'll look back and say, yeah, maybe I did. Maybe I pushed too hard. Maybe I didn't push enough. Not that it's ever, ever the sponsor's fault. But as someone who's trying to overcome pride, we, we always want to look and not just say, well, the person wasn't willing. Number seven, self-reliance. Our big book tells us that we have fear because self-reliance has failed us. Self-reliance is thinking that I don't need God, that I can handle things myself. Okay, what are some manifestations of this? If I don't make time to pray and meditate, because then I'm saying I don't need God's direction. And that is for sure pride. Or for me, if I meditate without pen and paper, or at the very least turning on the notes section of my phone, because either I think God isn't going to show up, and then where's my step two, right? Believing that God loves me enough to communicate with me. Or I'm thinking that whatever God has to say isn't important enough for me to write it down to make sure I remember it correctly. Um, when I first started working in my early 20s, I had a boss who said to me, whenever you come into my office, you need to bring a pad and a pen to write things down. Um, God is my employer with a capital E. So of course I need to 
be attentive to what he's telling me to do. And then spiritual pride here is the illusion that we're competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. That's a quote from Timothy Keller from his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Number eight, jealousy. It's a form of pride because it's really me telling God that the way he has distributed gifts is unfair. Okay, um, there can be jealousy that comes from thinking someone is doing a better job at being helpful. We have to be careful at that. Um, the antidote, if we're jealous, do something good for the person we feel jealous of. And to realize that God has enough gifts to give out and he is wise enough to know how to give them out. Um, I remember years ago, I was having trouble getting pregnant and I ultimately couldn't and adopted my two kids. But I had um, a friend and she had two children and she came over and she was afraid to tell me that she was pregnant with her third because, you know, she very sweetly didn't want me to feel bad. But I thought like, no, like just because God's giving you a baby doesn't mean that he's not going to give me a baby. God knows how to how to divvy up gifts. So I don't have to be jealous if someone has something that I think I want. If God thinks I need it, I'll get it. Number nine, hypersensitivity. That's me thinking or telling people that the way they're talking to me is wrong. It's really me thinking like I'm the queen of the world and everyone has to treat me a certain way. And, you know, I had this a lot, realized that I had this a lot with my children when they were younger, if they weren't respectful, instead of thinking, okay, I need to discipline them because it's not good for them to talk to authority figures this way my hypersensitivity and pride came out in the form of how dare he talk to me that way. That was all my pride. Really, it, was, it just should be, it's really not healthy for me to allow this and for my children to do it. Not because of its effect on me, but because what was right for them. Big Book tells us, page 125, we alcoholics are sensitive people. You know, that sounds good at first. Like, oh, I like poetry and sunsets and all that. Then the next line, it takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. How does this often show up? We don't like anyone to tell us we're wrong. And believe me, I still don't. I mean, I, you know, I don't say, okay, you see my character defects, bring it on, tell me, I wanna hear them all. No, of course I don't like it, but I will listen if someone tells me something. Um, Sometimes when we are hypersensitive with our sponsors, it's a subtle form of manipulation because then what happens is that, oh, the sponsor or other people won't want to ruffle our feathers. Like, oh, she's not going to want to make me cry. So I'm just going to, you know, be so sensitive that if she talks to me funny, I'll get all teared up. So sponsees who get hurt easily hypersensitive, it's pride. And the best thing we could do as sponsors is to ignore that hypersensitivity in them or to better yet, to point it out to them so that they can deal with it, but not tiptoe around them. If I have to tiptoe around someone, there's something unhealthy about the relationship. 
Number 10, unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is me forgetting how much God has forgiven me. It's also thinking I'm entitled to a life where everything goes my way, or at the very least is fair. Um, but our big book tells us we are now in the world of the spirit. And as my friend Melissa says, fairness is not my code. Love and tolerance is my code. Things don't have to be fair. I'm in the world to play the role that God assigns. Now, if I'm fighting for justice for someone else, that's one thing. But I need to really think hard before I start fighting for what's fair for me. Um, so again, as I talked about before, I would get angry and sometimes not forgive quickly when my son was younger and he raised his voice at me. Um, that lack of forgiveness was my pride. How dare he talk to me that way? Unforgiveness is how dare anyone do fill in the blank to me. People can do whatever they want. I can set up boundaries sometimes and not get close with them, but people can do whatever they want. And I need to forgive because God has forgiven me. Number 11, I'm entitled to fill in the blank. And yes, anything, anything we want or think we deserve goes in that. Um, from me feeling entitled to be able to like go in the pool on a hot day, um, I'm really not. I had a sponsor once, the sponsor who took me through the steps. He was a recovered alcoholic and he had been a skid row alcoholic, a real gutter drunk. And he said when he came around, his hands were shaking so badly that they would, instead of giving him a full cup of coffee, they would give him two half cups of coffee because he was shaking so badly. And that he, mom had to change his sheets every morning because he sweat through them every night. And he said, if this is as good as it gets, it's good enough. When I realize I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to kids who grow up and go to church, even though I raise them to go to church. I'm not entitled to kids who have a good career, even though I paid for their college. Um, I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to a long life. I'm not entitled to good health. I'm not entitled to anything. When we see that everything is a gift, life becomes so much easier. I'm really not entitled to anything. Number 12, criticizing, thinking that I am better than others. In the AA 12 and 12 on page 67, it says that gossip barbed with our anger is a polite form of murder by character assassination. Here, we're not trying to help those we criticize. We're trying to proclaim our own righteousness. If I'm criticizing someone, by definition, I'm saying that I'm better than that and that I would never do that. So I need to stop that. So how do we get over it? Well, first, something that seems like an antidote, but really isn't. Um, telling myself I'm really not, not smart, not pretty, not helpful, not a good employee. And so C.S. Lewis has said, by this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe that they're ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. And since what they're trying to believe may in some case be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it. 
and their minds are endlessly revolving on themselves, themselves. So what are the antidotes? One, think about others. And again, from Tim Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And in the big book on page 70, where it talks about sex, and remember, they say we treat sex problems like any other problems. It says if it's troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of the needs of others and we work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. And again, another cool quote by C.S. Lewis. If you meet a really humble person, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. Again, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less and being interested in others more. Second thing I can do is realize that I have pride. C.S. Lewis said, to acquire humility, the first step is to realize that you are proud. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. We all have some form of pride. Um, then what can I do? Well, thank God for these steps, right? Because I can do the steps on it. I can inventory where it is in my life, admit it, ask God to help me, discuss it with someone else, ask God to remove the defect, make amends if I need to, and practice the opposite. So how do we practice the opposite? Well, if I'm jealous, I can do something for the person I'm jealous of. If I find I want to be noticed for wearing the nicest clothes, I can make a point of wearing ordinary clothes. If I find I'm showing off in class, I can decide to raise my hand only one time per class. We can do the opposite of whatever action pride has led us to take. And I can practice gratitude. Sam Shoemaker says that the antidote for pride is not humility, but gratitude. Humility is still struggling with one's own attitude. Gratitude has found something without, in the presence of which to forget oneself and bow down in thankfulness. Pride may hide unseen in humility, but not in thankfulness. And the thankfulness should not be what God has done through me, because then I still may be marveling at myself. I should be marveling at what God has done for me, right? Remove my food obsession, restored my relationship with my family, things like that. And I just want to say, um, you know, a lot of us have that app, My Spiritual Toolkit, and it has a section for gratitude. So we'll type out our gratitudes. And I would say when we're done, say actively thank God for it. Don't just stop with the list. Remember, God wants to communicate with us. God wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want our laundry list, even if they're lists of gratitudes. So I make my list and then I stop and I say, God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. I actively thank him for it. And I think one thing is to be really rigorous in our 10 steps, right? Page 164 of the big book says, admit your faults to God and to your fellows. 
Um, yes, God knows our faults, right? So it's like, well, why do I have to admit them to him or to anyone else? I don't know. That's the mechanism that God, when he created the world, designed for removing our defects, that we have to see them, admit them, and ask for them to be removed. That's the mechanism he took in place. And we should be rigorous in our looking at ourselves. It doesn't mean we need to broadcast things to the whole world. But when I see like ugly defects in myself, I'll tell a couple of people, I'll tell my sponsor, I'll tell Melissa, or I'll tell someone I'm close with. I mean, I don't want to keep these things hidden because then God will just like not remove them and I want them removed. And of course we can pray. Um, two prayers that are helpful. One um, you can Google it, the litany of humility. It's a Christian prayer. So if you're Christian, that might be really helpful to you. And then here's a prayer I found that I really liked. Um, Lord, please do whatever it takes to diminish pride's power in my life. I still covet glory and honor, but I know I should serve without thought of getting credit. It's so hard. Make your selfless love for me so palpable and affecting that I don't care what others think. Lord, even as I pray for humility, I am prideful. All I can say is, Lord, be merciful to me. So we pray. We pray for the removal of pride and for humility. And whenever I give this talk, I always like to end with the story of, um, it's from the book, how to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People by Pete Gregg, G-R-E-I-G. And it's the example of someone who um, had a lot of humility and I just find it helpful. So I hope you all do too. Dominique, a lean, muscular, six feet, two inches, always wearing a navy blue beret, learned at age 54 that he was dying of inoperable cancer. With the community's permission, he was a monk, he moved to a poor neighborhood in Paris and took a job as night watchman at a factory. Returning home every morning at 8 a.m., he would go directly to a little park across the street from where he lived and sit down on a wooden bench. Hanging around the park were marginal people, drifters, winos, has-been, dirty old men who leered at the girls passing by. Dominique never criticized, never scolded, never reprimanded them. He laughed, told stories, shared his candy, accepted them just as they were. From living so long out of the inner sanctuary, he gave off a peace, a serene sense of self-possession and a hospitality of heart that caused cynical young men and defeated old men to gravitate toward him like bacon toward eggs. His simple witness lay in accepting others as they were without question and allowing them to make themselves at home in his heart. Dominique was the most non-judgmental person I have ever known. He loved with the heart of God. One day when the ragtag group of rejects asked him to talk about himself, Dominic gave them a thumbnail description of his life. Then he told them with quiet conviction that God loved them tenderly and stubbornly, that God had come for rejects and outcasts just like them. His witness was credible because the words were enfleshed on his bones. The word was enfleshed on his bones. Later, one old timer said, the dirty jokes, vulgar language, and leering at girls just stopped. One morning, Dominique failed to appear on his park bench. 
The men grew concerned. A few hours later, he was found dead on the floor of his cold water flat. He died in the obscurity of a Parisian slum. Dominique never tried to impress anybody, never wondered if his life was useful or his witness meaningful. He never felt he had to do something great for God. He did keep a journal. It was found shortly after his death in the drawer of the nightstand by his bed. His last entry is one of the most astonishing things I've ever read. All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and witness. If he wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is God's concern, not mine. It would be indecent of me to worry about it. In Dominique, I saw the reality of a life lived entirely for God and others. And I think that's what we all want, right? Deep down, you know, and and especially as we work through the steps, right? We come, we just want to put down the food, put down the alcohol, but then something changes and we start wanting to live for God and others. Well, what does God even want? I think he wants two things. I think he wants to be close to us. I mean, I think we can remember like, you know, those of us who are married when we first dated our spouses, we wanted to be around them all the time. I think God loves us like a gazillion times more than that and wants to be close to us and wants us to be close to him. And what else does he want? For us to get along with, to help, to love his other kids. My two kids were just here for Thanksgiving and every morning they would go together to Starbucks and get coffee. This time my daughter was the one who had money, so she treated. There's a time when my son had more money, so he treated just to seeing them together makes me so happy. Or the other day I was um, with my daughter and my son called asking her for advice and she helped him, right? Warms my mama's heart. Imagine how that warms God's heart to see us helping each other. So that's, I think, our goal to live for God and each other. And when we're immersed in doing that, we're really not thinking of ourselves at all. And pride just kind of drifts away automatically. And with that, I will pass. Thank you.